What's up, everybody? Welcome to Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast brought to you by myself, Carlos Colazzo, and Ben Badler. Um, it is Wednesday morning. We're in the middle of the playoffs. And Ben, how's it going, man? Great. This is the best time of the year. It's playoff, baseball, handbook season. Everything is going on right now. Yes, there is a lot going on. I think, I mean, I know I'm done with travel. Jupiter just wrapped up um, in between our last podcast. And now I think you're done with travel as well. Is that correct? Or you still have some stuff you're getting out to? I may try to sneak in a, a little little visit or two here or there. But yeah, it's, I mean, that's one of the challenges we always have too, right? Is, I mean, I was on the road for a couple of weeks in Fort Myers, seeing some of the WWBA like the sophomore and the underclass event went over and saw the minority baseball prospects, all America game. Those were all awesome. And it's like, man, like I'd love to go to Jupiter too, but I know we have a, you know, you're there, Teddy's there. So we had some folks there covering it. And it's like, I gotta get back and write. Like when I'm on the road, I don't have time to, you know, really be producing content for, for our site. So it's always a, a, a balance. It's, it's good to be able to just be home and kind of, digest and really analyze everything sometimes yeah absolutely i mean we have a bunch of content up from jupiter we're going to talk about the jupiter event and players who stood out a little bit later in the podcast but we have a lot to get to today as you said it's a very busy month um we're probably going to ignore the nba opening night i don't think you have anything to say about lebron james ben but um a few interesting didn't know he played <laughs> there you go true baseball american i love it a few um, notable things to kind of touch on before we get into the meat of the episode. I feel like the biggest piece of news that came out in between this episode and our last episode was uh, the announcement that Major League Baseball is going to require teams to provide housing for minor league players starting as soon as next year. Um, Jeff Passan originally broke this story for ESPN, um, but this is something that I feel like we've talked about for a while now, and I feel like we have steadily taken some nice steps forward for quality of life improvements for minor league players. Uh, I know there was a lot of animosity just with the minor league restructuring um, and how Major League Baseball was kind of handling all of that. But this is great to see. Obviously, we'll need to see the details of, of how this is going to unfold. I think there's a specific wording in this that certain minor league players were going to have housing provided, which is kind of interesting. I'm curious to see why it's not just all minor league players. Um, but this is a, a really important step forward. I think I know just dealing with housing for minor league players who aren't guaranteed they're going to be in one location for the, the entire summer and have to deal with uh, various leases and bouncing back and forth uh, on some occasions or just sharing a room with six other people. It's not an ideal situation for for developing as a player or just the mental health that that you're dealing with throughout the season so I was excited to see this do you have any thoughts in general on this obviously it's it's pretty long overdue uh, either this or just increasing the pay I think like you said we really need to see the specifics of what MLB is planning so I, I think do that and then we'll talk because I do not trust Major League Baseball when it comes to what they say, especially when they speak in these generalities about their plans to change things and, and make things better for minor league players. I, I think this, their statement was 
it was PR, the, the story on their website. Ooh, <laughs> uh, look, it, it, it did not have any specifics on what's happening. And, and they know that they are getting hammered publicly to, to the point where they're positioned on paying minor league players salaries of, you know, $10,000 or less per year is, is just no longer tenable. There, there is just too much pushback. Uh, it's coming more from, uh, from other media outlets as well. It, it's coming from fans. It's coming from minor league players and, and even major league players. Now we're starting to speak out more. So the, the folks who work in the commissioner's office and, and PR for MLB, they, they know that MLB and, and the owners are not the good guys in, in, this, in this story of how minor league baseball players are paid and how they're treated. So they, they come out with this statement and, and they did exactly what, what, what I said before on this podcast. It's the, 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 the statement starts, this, this is a story on MLB.com. So it, it starts as Major League Baseball continues its commitment to a first-class development system. <laughs> the league's 30 owners are closing in on an announcement for new policy, the new housing policy at all levels of the minor leagues. Like, really? This is this is MLB committing itself to a a first-class player development. All right. So so then the 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 statement that MLB puts out is MLB is engaged in a multi-year effort to modernize the minor league system and better assist players as they pursue their dreams of playing in the major leagues. So MLB has, <laughs> they, they for years have been paying minor league players as little as they can get away with. They've spent millions of dollars lobbying Congress to make sure that they are exempt from laws that would require them to pay minor league players more money. And they cut down on the number of minor league teams, which, which means fewer opportunities for players to, uh, to pursue their dreams of playing in the major leagues as, as MLB puts it. So then the statement says in 2021, we increase the salaries for minor league players by 38 to 72 percent, depending on level, uh, and significantly reduce travel requirements during the season, and, and then it goes on. But but this is exactly what I'm I'm talking about before, where MLB PR is going to hammer home the percentage salary increases. Yes, that they gave minor league players. I feel like anytime you see a salary increase that large, you should immediately be skeptical of the actual money because that that is massive. <laughs> But then you look at what the oh, actual money I'm, I'm is starting sure, at. <laughs> I don't doubt that the math is accurate. Like, oh yeah, no doubt. Like, yeah, like a fifty, a fifty percent raise sounds great, right? Mm -hmm. But like, what you're saying is obviously that you know, look, they're never going to put the actual annual salaries that they pay these players in their releases mm -hmm. because it is an embarrassment to say, hey, we increased a player's salary from seven thousand dollars a year to ten thousand dollars a year. Yep. Right? Who who cares about the percentage increase when you have a, a professional athlete in your minor league system who has been there for multiple years, who 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 is still making a salary of under ten thousand mm -hmm. dollars a year? 
So if you see somebody citing the percentage salary increase they gave the players this year, they're either, you know, just getting paid directly by MLB or, or their PR efforts have, have successfully worked mm-hmm. on them because what, what matters is, is what they're getting paid. Yeah. Not what, <clears throat> excuse me, not what the percentage increases when you're, when you're starting from, from that low of a base. Yeah. No, I, I think you're you're absolutely right to be, to be critical of them, Ben. A lot of this is just MLB patting itself on the back. But I do think at the same time, I'm I'm still excited that that some things are starting to happen. Like you said, there's still a long way to go. These guys are still not making very much money. Uh, but I think JJ mentioned it in his story um, when this happened. But there are going to be players who will be able to stick in professional baseball because of this and because of the steps that hopefully continue to be taken that will allow us to see major league players that in, in a previous universe would not have existed. They would have had to leave minor league baseball for financial reasons. Um, and I do think it's good to see that more major league players seem to be focusing on this issue for minor league players, because for a while, um, at least several years ago, it seemed like mostly no one really cared at the major league level, or if they did, um, I don't know how uh, aware I was of that or how, how vocal those players were, but it's, it's also nice to see groups like the advocates for minor leaguers uh, and more than baseball, having some impact on the quality of life for minor league players. And hopefully at, at some point after I'm assuming we'll get the details of, of what specifically this is going to look like after the CBA is finalized. I'd imagine it has, it's baked into that in some capacity, but we should know the details before the 2022 season, which is good. And we'll have to uh, circle back at that point and, and really break it down fully to see what we're looking at, what kind of a situation we're looking at. But I guess before we move on to, to the next little topic here is, do you, do you have confidence that we're kind of on the right path for minor leaguers? Obviously, you, are, you aren't too thrilled with the current situation as it stands now, but do you think we're headed towards a more sustainable um, minor league system in the game? I think we need to see what the details of this housing policy are first and MLB has not come out with any of those details. They've just come out with some generalities in a PR statement because I, I, I suspect with housing, like what, what is MLB doing here? I don't know. I, I suspect that there's going to be a lot of catches and caveats here along the way. I think the reason we're seeing housing for players come before owners assigned to deciding to pay their athletes a a wage that is you know above a, a poverty level salary is is because if if you raise salaries across the board let's say like if you're going to go out and pay every minor leaguer 30,000 or $40,000 a year, that's going to cost each owner millions of dollars in, in labor costs. So you can say, well, what's a few million dollars to somebody who's worth a billion dollars, but they still don't want to lose a couple million dollars in salaries uh, and, and in annual costs too, if, if they don't have to, because once you pay that money to players as an owner, you don't get it back. But housing is is different because with housing, I mean, if, if you if you own a major league team, you, you can just purchase real estate 
and the value of, of that asset that you purchase is, is more than likely going to appreciate over time. So if you buy an apartment complex, you can rent out the rooms that are not being used by players. Uh, when players are not living there in the off season, you can rent out those rooms too, whether it's through a, you know, a traditional lease through Airbnb, like, Hey, come, come live where the Yankees minor league players live. What right? a nightmare. So- <laughs> <laughs> actually being like publicized. Holy cow. <laughs> but, but the, 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 the point that they're buying an appreciating asset that comes in with incoming cash flows, that is a much more appealing option for MLB owners instead of increasing player salaries. So, so while I understand why players are happy uh, about the news that came out and, and they should be, I, I would still be careful to put much faith into what MLB is suggesting they're going to do until concrete details actually come out about who is going to be eligible for these housing benefits, um, what the benefits will actually be. And, and still the, the biggest issue is that MLB is playing is, is paying players these salaries of, $12,000 or less in, in many cases and trying to spin this as a, a win for players when raising salaries should still be the most important issue for minor league players. Well said, Ben. Uh, and now in equally serious news, uh, I wanted to bring up a tweet by Kevin Goldstein, who works for Fangraphs and was a previous baseball American, obviously worked for the Astros. He brought up the I think we talked about this on a previous podcast, just how we pronounce stats. Um, I learned that Kevin also says ops or OPS like a word. Uh, so it's good to know he is of sound mind. And apparently Matt Myers replied to this thread. It kind of blew up the, uh, the baseball Twitter uh, sphere, at least that I'm exposed to online. Apparently ops is like a BA tradition. Apparently Jim Callis and John Manuel both are also ops guys. Um, so I'm very proud to kind of continue in that line. And it seems like, Ben, you have uh, strayed afar. You need to take if a stand now. you want to continue to embarrass <laughs> yourself on this topic, I'm not going to stop you from, from being on, on the wrong side of history here. Uh, as much respect as I have for John and Jim, you guys are, are just not, not on the right side of history on this one. Here, here's what I don't understand. It seems like, first of all, this is really not something that I like consciously ever thought about. It's just when you get on a podcast and you come into these stats, when you, you 90% of the time, you don't have to think about it because you're writing about these rather than talking about them. It's one syllable versus three syllables. It's as simple as that for me, Ben. You're wasting your time with OPS. We could save listeners precious amount of seconds and even minutes, depending on the podcast by saying ops versus OPS. But you don't, you don't, you don't, what what's about wrong with WRC ops? plus? Tell me what's wrong with yeah. ops. See, see, that's the thing. If the vowels are placed correctly, you can say it as a word. And if they're not, you just have to say it as the acronym. I, I will never do work plus. I will stand here and tell you that I will never say work plus seriously on the podcast. I will always say WRC plus. But WOBA, the vowels line up for me to say it as a word. So it just makes more sense. 
And God not, forbid, I'm not, never going to say Con- batting I think average Connor on pointed balls out, in play. I, I think Connor pointed out you don't. This say is Connor Glassy, who works for the Indians yeah, now. Not, as a scout and is a previous baseball American. For those who don't know, but not ERA. Yeah, I, I wonder what I, I'm sure that one is just. It's a it's an old stat that even the old heads can appreciate, and it was just established as ERA. But now, in a in an age where we have stats coming out on the regular. I think it's easier to uh to just start saying some of those as a word like era it was already established you know when war came out no one knew what it meant so we just said it as a word i don't know do you want to say era well, war, is that, war is that is your argument or word. you should say w-a-r no war is the is the stat war yeah. is also a word ops okay. is not a stat Ops is just something you're, or ops is not a word. It's just something. Baseball that, ops. Uh, it's a shortened word. Baseball operation. Oh, no, that's, well, that's different. That's, you're, you're talking about baseball operations. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you're talking about war, the stat versus war, the word, which obviously those are different. I just don't understand the logic here, Ben. I think you're wrong here. I think, I think <laughs> the listeners should not uh, hold this against us if you're rating the podcast of uh, Carlos's mispronunciation of, of OPS. All right, we'll take a poll on our various Twitter accounts, and we'll see that uh, I'm in I'm on the right side of history here. But um, how much of the MLB playoffs have you watched, Ben? I know you're busy; you've got a lot of stuff going on. But the NLCS, which is now two to one in favor of Atlanta after a, a really tight game, has been has been great. I feel like the whole time the ALCS a little bit less great. If at least if you want close games, I think that series has been compelling for a number of reasons as well. But what are your thoughts on like the Grand postseason Slams. so far? Yeah, yeah, it's been awesome, man. It's like you said, yeah. The these Red Sox Astros games have been a little <laughs> not not quite as uh, exciting. I mean, obviously a lot of a lot of home runs, a lot of offense. Uh, but yeah, it's well, I don't know. What are your what are your thoughts? No, like that game, the, that that I mean, that Dodgers Braves game yesterday. I mean, it, it was tough because the Red Sox Astros series was going at the same time. I was trying to flip back and forth, but mm. that ooh, did not expect Cody Bellinger to be oh, man. coming up in in that kind of situation and delivering. Don't hold me to this, but I think I saw on Reddit on baseball Reddit that Cody Bellinger has only hit one other pitch in that location for a hit in his career. I believe that's what it was. So yeah, very surprised. I mean, it wasn't a bad pitch by any means. He just made an excellent swing on a ball that was pretty well above the zone, but no, I think my strategy for when games do overlap is just stick with the game that's ongoing and near the end, especially when it's a game as tight as, as Braves Dodgers was last night. Then you can just flip over to uh, the other one as it kind of gets into crunch time. But I feel like the last few years we've been spoiled with really good playoffs. I just remember thinking each of the last, at least two, maybe even three years, the playoff games and the series were all compelling, competitive, close, um, and just really engaging. And that's continued to be the case. I mean, Braves Dodgers, it's been three walk-off wins for the first three games. And I don't know how you could ask for more than that. That series especially has been a lot of, um, balls in play, a lot of base running excitement, defensive plays, a lot of base running blunders too at the same time. Uh, the one thing that kind of jumps out to me is just starting pitching. Seems like if you can get a pitcher go five innings, you are thrilled. We've had a lot of pitchers come out after three, four innings, 
Um, and obviously we've kind of trended in that direction, but no, I think overall the, the playoffs have been really compelling. Um, and I'm curious to see what happens now. It wouldn't be surprising for me really for any outcome in the world series at this point, but do you have, uh, any favorites for the world series? Are you leaning towards any team? Do you think anyone's jumped out and really impressed you? Uh, what are your predictions for the rest of the way here? I think the, I mean, I, I think the two best teams still in the playoffs are the Dodgers and the Astros. But like you said, at, at the, you know, at this point, it's, it's not like there's some heavy favorite in, in either series. Yep. One note that I saw last night that it was, it probably shouldn't have been surprising to me, but I was surprised. Um, I think baseball reference tweeted this out, but Jose Altuve became um, the leader in postseason home runs by an infielder in MLB history with 21 career postseason home runs, which is just fascinating to me because his career, I mean, I don't know who we're going to compare him to, but it, it in some ways it's similar to like Dustin Pedroia for me. I mean, he was always an underlooked guy coming up. I think we ranked him number 28 in Houston's organization organization in 2011 in our top 30 rankings. And just going back and looking at his scouting report, then it's pretty impressive all around. And the biggest criticism is just his size. I guess at this point, we still had a bias against smaller players that I really think is, is gone away to a large degree now. I know you've talked about this a lot, Ben, um, but just reading his report, and you guys can can check that out on Baseball America to read his full scouting report. It's just really impressive, the player that he has developed into, a guy who has 164 career home runs over 11 years, is a 308, 360, 462 career hitter, led the league in hits four times, led the league in average three times. Like, I mean, he's he's pretty safely a hall of fame type player at this point. Right. Uh, there might be a little hiccup in his resume for sure. <laughs> Some people might, <laughs> might hold against him, but just in, in, yeah, just in terms of the performance, I think he's on that trajectory. I mean, he's, he's just such a complete hmm. hitter. It's he, he has like, what we talked about, he has a, he has a small strike zone. You have a narrower window to work into if you're a pitcher just because he is so small and even though he's short he doesn't lack strength he he has power he has tremendous plate coverage hand-eye coordination ability to make contact with fastball breaking ball change up doesn't matter what type of pitch where in the strike zone it is it's it's a short a uh, compact, adjustable type swing, a ton of contact, swings at good pitches. Just there, there, there really aren't many holes in his game as a hitter. It's I know a lot of people hate him now, but he he is a really fun player just just to watch if if you just appreciate um, such a, a player with who is that complete of a hitter. Yeah, absolutely. He, he's always fun to watch. And the, another shorter player who we were not as light on in our org rankings, who also had a pretty impressive postseason, is Wander Franco. He hit a pair of home runs in the series against Boston. Um, I think he hit 368 over that series, uh, seven for 19. He was impressive in the playoffs. He was impressive in the regular season. Um, he is a shorter 
hitter. He's a guy that you've been very high on for a long time. Not that you were the outlier or anything there. He was our number one prospect for two years. Um, what is your, I guess, what are you thinking about Wander Franco now after his impressive rookie debut this year, how he's performed in the postseason? Has your, your expectations for Wander Franco, have they changed at all? Or is it just kind of in line with what you expected? And I guess, what should we continue to expect um, to see out of this kid moving forward? I think my, my expectations were just already extremely high for him. But at, at the same time, look like what you've seen with Jared Kelenic or, shoot, I mean, going back to Mike Trout when he first came up, you don't you don't necessarily think every player is going to be a star right away, even if you think they're going to be a star in the future. There's, there's a transition process sometimes, and it just doesn't seem like there's really been much of any uh, hiccups along the way for Wander Franco in, in the big leagues. And I, I think I, or I continue to think this guy is going to be a, a perennial all-star. And I think we, at some point, maybe in the very not too distant future, we, we will be talking about him in the Soto, Tatis, Vladdy Jr., Ronald Acuna echelon of players. I mean, as far as uh, the, the athleticism and, and some of the, other tools that like Tatis and Acuna bring to the table. And in particular, I I don't know, Franco doesn't have that. Um, But this, he's just, I mean, a a lot of the things we were just talking about with, with Jose Altuve as a hitter, Franco has a lot of those same traits and he does it from both sides of the plate. And maybe he can, play shortstop you know how long does he stay there I don't know but look I mean one of the concerns on him coming out of uh the the Dominican Republic when he signed at 16 was oh he's kind of like a thicker lower half type guy like good hands but does he you know eventually lose enough range where he ends up at at second or or third base and I, I still think that could be the case but I, I think this is a, a you know a, a Jose Ramirez type of offensive player, and he could develop into that you know defensive skill set too. But right now he's handling himself uh, at uh, at shortstop. I think I think we're going to be talking about him among the game's true star players, uh, may, maybe even by by next season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't see any reason why we wouldn't start talking about him I expect him to kind of be in that final player that you mentioned if you had a rookie of the year vote would you vote for Wander as your rookie of the year I think I probably would at this point I mean it's it's tough I can see people getting hung up with the amount of uh, innings and games that he played he only played 70 in the regular season Uh, Jonathan India who is probably a, a favorite for that award played 150 really a full season from him but I mean in the time he was given Wander was playing really like a six war player um, per fan graphs of all the eligible or qualified rookies. He led, he led all of them in that category. If we're just prorating his war for an 162 game season. So in the games that he was playing, he was playing 
like a six war player, which is better than anyone else. That's pretty impressive to me. Um, hitting 288, 347, 463, uh, good plate discipline numbers, obviously playing a premium position. I'm still a little bit skeptical about long-term how he's going to stick at that position. There are a few plays in the postseason that you probably want your shortstop to make, but at the same time, I'm not ready to overreact from, from a few plays in his first ever playoff appearance. Um, but I am very confident that he's just going to continue hitting and, and basically, like you said, be one of the game's young premium players. I'm excited to see what happens with him. But if I did have a rookie of the year vote, I think I would probably give it to Wander. I don't, I don't know that it's the same as an MVP award where really the value you get from the player over the whole season should matter as much. It obviously wasn't Wander's fault that he was playing in the minor leagues for so much of the season. Um, the, the Rays brought him up when they thought they needed him, and he was obviously a very useful piece in their playoff run. Um, so I think I'd probably give it to him. I think the the overall talent and his performance in the time he had is is very compelling to me. So he'd probably be my guy. I could see that. Yeah, I don't think there's a another runaway candidate in the American League this year. I mean, his teammate Randy Rosarena, who like nobody thinks is an actual rookie, but is <laughs> just an older, he, a little no, bit older was, rookie. Yeah, a little bit more. Well, I don't know if he's more famous coming into the year would he be more yeah maybe the general public would know more of a rosarena than franco yeah um i wonder that's actually an interesting maybe for his for his playoff for his yeah his playoff performance last year maybe the casual fan probably but I, i imagine most ba readers or prospect hounds probably the at least the same amount of recognition for both those guys. I mean, Wander is a two-time number one player in, in ba- or number one prospect in baseball. I feel like that holds a lot of weight. And, and in the Dominican Republic, dude, like I'd be going down to, to the DR and I would just get like a, like an Uber from the, like the, the airport to the hotel or, or wherever I was going. And like, it'd just be like talking to like the Uber driver. Oh yeah. Like I work in baseball and he'd be like, tell me about like Wander Franco. I'd be like, Wander Franco, like the 17 year old kid in the Rays. <laughs> just like he was already super famous <laughs> in the Dominican Republic from basically the time, the time he signed and was our number one international signing at, at the time. And then, yeah, he's, <laughs> he's always been uh pretty, Pretty big time down there, but uh, obviously a Rosa Reina's uh, postseason stuff is kind of on another <laughs> another level. I mean, I think like Luis Garcia with Houston had a really nice season. He'd be a good candidate, but yeah, I mean, for Franco, the the value that he created, even in the shorter amount of time mm-hmm. he was up, if if he wins the Rookie of the Year, I think he's a I think it is a deserving candidate too. Yeah, and he's like I mean. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just saying he's he's like such a baseball rat too, yeah. like in, in that same way of like Tatis and Soto and like these other guys. Like I remember the Rays. I forget how long it was after he signs, but they had some. You know, it was like after the season they had some camp in the Dominican Republic. It, it must have been like not too long after he signed, maybe the year after and. 
Um, so, you know, they have, you know, their stuff at the academy. He was there. And then, like, he would go home back to, like, Bunny, where he's from. And I forget if, like, he put maybe, like, posted videos on social media or just, like, you know, they heard about it because word travels quickly. Like, he'd just go home and, like, be playing more baseball back, <laughs> like, back at home. And they, they had to be like, all right, like, Wander, like, we love you. Like, we love that you are addicted to baseball and don't want to ever step away from the field. Like we actually, we want you to rest and be ready to go. Yeah. It's like, it is a long 140 game <laughs> minor league season. We don't want you to get hurt. Like it we, seems we, like we a great sign your... when you, you feel like the concern is your player is playing too much. I feel like that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, to hear. You, just, you, you can't pull him away from the field and you can see the way he plays mm-hmm. the game and everything he does. He just, and you could, you could just see if, I mean, I saw him when he was 15. I know other, you know, people who, you know, work in international scouting, obviously were following cause he was a, you know, a famous guy. I mean, look, mm-hmm. he's like the nephew of uh, Eric Ibar. He comes from a baseball family. His older brothers, uh, Wander Franco and Wander Franco also were former minor league players or, or were minor league players at that time. Mm-hmm. So, so people knew him from a very young age, but even just seeing him when he was, 15 there was just something you could just see he was not just the best hitter on the field but one of if not the smartest players mm-hmm. on the field too and 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 now you're starting to see more power come out yep. too which is you know we, we see that as guys i mean shoot what is he like i think he's still 20 or 21 <laughs> i was gonna say we see that as guys yeah you know, he's still 20 their, he'll turn 21 in march next year which is insane yeah, so like we're we're still what five to seven years away from his physical or what should be his physical prime. Mm-hmm. So, I I think even though we haven't seen big power numbers from him throughout his minor league career, he has a ton of bat speed. There's raw power in there. I th- I just think his mindset, which is a you know a good one to have as a young hitter, was to to make contact, put the ball in play use the whole field, uh, not try to sell out for power. I, I just think as he, one, gets stronger and two, becomes a, a smarter hitter and learns which situations to look to drive balls. And, and you're already starting to see him do that, but figure out which are, are damage counts and, and damage yeah. uh, pitches to try to swing at. You're, you're going to see, I think, a lot more power than what he's – even even shown to date for sure and, and it's obviously a different offensive environment but even just going back to jose altuve his first three years he had a slug under 400 for each of his first three seasons including a partial 2011 season hit two home runs that year in 57 games seven home runs in 147 the next season uh five in 2013 and then seven in 2014 before he really even got to double digits and started being more of a power threat that he's kind of known as today Wander, I mean, his first partial season, 70 games, already hit seven home runs, 18 doubles, had a 463 slugging percentage, which was a lot better than Altuve over his first three years. So, yeah, I'm pretty confident that power is going to be a pretty pretty normal part of his game that you can kind of expect to come as soon as next year. I mean, it's just such a – for hitters that good, I feel like we've just come to assume they're going to tap into – a decent amount of power when you've got that sort of barrel control and you're consistently getting premium contact 
the ball's just going to fly in today's game. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, Ben, well, is... Uh, no, I was going to say, look at, uh, I mean, Jose Ramirez, who, you know, I mentioned before and kind of feels like a lazy comp because it's like two shortstops from not just the Dominican Republic, but both from Bunny and like their boys, <laughs> like they're like really, really close growing up. But I th- it really does fit for me as a comp josh josh, not josh just podcast. texted me and said this is a horrible comp ben i just that's just coming in right now the comp the comp police have <laughs> come and, and spoken but i mean but but jose ramirez coming up through the minor leagues with, with a lot less fanfare um and and a lot less fanfare than he uh you know should have obviously gotten he was, he was very underrated as a prospect not that he performed this quite to the same level that wander did but coming up he, he was always a guy who also put the bat to the ball a lot, made a lot of contact and did not hit for really any power in the minor leagues. It was like, you know, three home runs, five home runs, uh, even single digit home runs early in his major league career. But again, as he yep. got stronger, became a smarter hitter, just, just with more experience he turned into a guy who's a, you know, pretty consistent 30 plus, you know, bordering on, on 40 home run guy. So if, if we see that from Wander Franco at, at his peak, uh, I would not be surprised. And in fact, that's, that's, that's what I, I don't, I don't think he's consistently going to be a, you know, a 35 plus mm-hmm. home run guy, but I, I do think we will see some seasons from him where, where he does produce at that level. Yeah, I like that. Uh, Jose Ramirez has two seasons with 35 plus. I know in in our scouting reports of him coming up to the system, he peaked at number nine in the Indian system. And one of the questions was, will he have enough power to profile at third with his kind of defensive question marks? Where is he going to settle in? And obviously he's answered that question. What what I was going to ask earlier about Wander Ben is, is he the best pure hitter that you've seen personally or where would he stack up with some of the other players that you've seen personally? I know Vladdy was also a guy that we gave an 80 pure hit tool. So I'm just kind of curious who are the upper echelon pure hitters that, that you've seen or you've covered um, and where does Wander stack up with that group? Probably just, as far as pure bats a ball, he he might he he's probably a touch better even than than Vlad Jr. was. Now pure bat to ball is not everything. I'm not saying like Nick Madrigal would be a better hitter than you yeah. know, Vlad Jr. For example, like there's there's more to it than just being able to put the ball in play if it's if it's really like contact. So I I, I if if you're just but if you're just looking at that, I, I would give Franco the edge now now as an overall hitter i i would give the edge to to vlad i mean soto obviously belongs in this conversation mm-hmm. and but i think he was another probably, guy who kind of just exceeded expectations no one really expected in the sense that they did with vladdy and with wander even he just moved well, he was the, so the, yeah i mean the thing with yeah the thing with soto is he was in the he was in the minor leagues for like 11 minutes i mean he 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 came out, won the GCL batting title. The next year, he got hurt, so he didn't play much. And then, you know, he didn't much play much, and it was only in low A. Yeah, I had the Nationals like, handbook chapter one year and ranked Soto behind Victor Robles. I would definitely take that one back if I could. 
but like like he just like came to the big leagues in like a blink mm-hmm. that year so it's 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 hard to put him on the same playing field as a prospect compared to like what we saw from Franco yeah or he played 122 games Jr. in the minors over three yeah seasons, like we didn't insane. we didn't see we didn't see Juan Soto in the upper levels of, of the minor leagues to be able to compare but but obviously he's on his own planet as far as you know pure hit on base just skills. his right his now. 2018 I know we, we kind of talk about it in passing but his 2018 season was insane he started at low a Hagerstown played 16 games there he hit repeating three... the level yes so that so the nationals had him repeat I I understand he was he was mm-hmm. injured the year before right yeah but he hit 373 486 814 16 games was moved up to high Potomac 15 games there. He hit 371, 466, 790. Then he was promoted to double a where he played just eight games, 323, 400, 581. And then he was promoted to the majors. He got 116 games as 19 year old and put up a 292, 406, 517 line with 22 home runs, 25 doubles, 99 strikeouts to 79 walks. Like, that's insane. He had a 142 ops plus in 162 oh games after starting the year in low A. Great <laughs> ops plus. <laughs> also, the lowest ops plus of his career. Insane. Yeah. And that's what, I mean, do you think the Nationals saw that coming when they started him back in low A? I know they were, they, when I, when I talked to people with the Warriors, they were very high on just his ability to make adjustments in his hands in the box. But I mean, even, even they would admit, I think they did not expect a player that we see today to, to come out of that. Like he had to have exceeded everyone's expectations. So man, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think they saw a player who would put up Ted Williams comps. (laughs) <laughs> 400 on base 500 slug yeah in the same season where they you know assigned him to start the year in low a <laughs> he has a career 432 on base percentage that's insane it's i love i mean it, i mean his walk to strikeout numbers are you remember when we did sign ridiculous. one trade one cut one with fernando tatis ronda cunha and juan soto i don't think anyone took soto Probably need to go back and. Uh... <laughs> I mean, I, I still think you can make cases for the other guys, but man, Soto is just impressive. I think Josh at the beginning of the season said he thought Juan Soto was the best hitter in baseball, including Mike Trout. And I mean, after this year, obviously Mike Trout was injured, but if you're just talking best pure hitter without overall value, defensive value, base running value, I mean, it's a pretty easy argument to make. So. Oh yeah, his. The, the, the on-base skills that he has are... Yeah, the play just, discipline is... Uh, unbl- the, the way he's able to lay off the high fastball and, and not even just lay off high fastballs in the strike zone, like his ability to decipher a ball that's just above the zone versus a strike that he can do damage in inside the zone is unbelievable. He He's also my favorite hitter to watch from the open side when he... When he swings, like his barrel just gets so deep 
into the hitting zone. It gets there so early. It stays on plane for so long. It looks like he's going to, it looks like he's going to be a catcher's interference every time he swings <laughs> from the side. Like he's just going to smack the catcher in the helmet or something because his, he, he gets his barrel so deep into the hitting zone. Mm-hmm. So even if he, if, if he's, if he's early, he can catch it out front and drive it out to the pull side. If, if, if he's a little bit later or the pitch is on the outer third, he can let the ball travel deeper. He doesn't need to be uh, precise with his timing so he can catch it deeper mm-hmm. and, and drive the ball with impact to the opposite field or out of the opposite field. And, and that's why you see so many mm-hmm. big home runs from him, not just to the pole side, but, but the opposite way too. It's, he's just, that's such a fun swing to watch. And you combine that with the incredible pitch recognition and, and discipline yeah. that he has. And you have this, you know, mutant on base skill type guy who, you know, who also has you know 30 plus home run yeah. power. At, at this point, his power is 22. probably underrated just because people so quickly go to the plate discipline. That's just so rare in the game. Like if he wanted, and, and if he wanted to lead the league in homers and adjust his approach to do so, I feel very confident he could easily do that. Yeah, and, and another guy too who are, I say like early on in his career, like he still is early on. He's twenty two I mean, years old, you know, <laughs> right? But like when when he signed coming out of the Dominican Republic, like you know, he 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 was considered one of, if not like the. No, it's, it's like it's like one of the best pure hitters available, but you know, as you can see, he doesn't really run. <laughs> he doesn't really throw that great. But you know, one of the questions was, all right, he he is a very good pure hitter, but he's going to have to play a, a corner, and is he going to have enough power to carry him? Again, this is when he was 16 years old. So like 16, 17 years old, is he going to have enough power to carry him on a corner? Uh, and it's another one that's, you know, he, I mean, he, he's just gotten with him. I think it's just significant strength gains since the time he he signed and, and early on in his career. And, and he, and he started to flash that early on and in the Gulf coast league a little bit, but um, another guy where it's the, the kind of guy I like where it's a, a very advanced pure hitter who knows a strike zone has good bat to ball skills. And even if there's not power there um, early on at the time, especially as a teenager, it's, it's something you can grow into more uh, as you, as you get older. And I, I say that as again, Soto is another guy who's still about a half decade away from maybe his typical <laughs> uh, physical prime. Years. Yeah. And happy early birthday to one. Soto. he will turn 23 on October 25th. So that's coming up shortly. Um, but he's going to be a free agent in 2020. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> he's going to be a free agent in 2025. I can't imagine the contract that he's going to get at that point. It's going to be five. <laughs> Unbelievable, man. All right. Well, I'm glad that we um, transitioned into that one soda conversation. That was fun, not planned. But you know, that's the benefit of this this podcast format, Ben. We can just let you talk about things and uh, share your wisdom with us. But I know you wanted to. Talk about the Rays as well. Um, it seems like people feel very strongly about the Rays for for good or for ill. Um, what are your thoughts on this? And I guess you can just give some background as to to what this topic even is. 
Well, yeah, I mean, the, you know, the Rays were playing the Red Sox in, in the playoffs and, and got eliminated. And it's, it's just kind of wild to me how these, these very strong reactions that the Rays elicit from people uh, who don't like them <laughs> for, for, for various reasons. Like, I think they're a great run organization. They won a ton of games this year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they have a very good farm system. It's, I think they're fun to watch. Like I love watching Franco and, and Randy Rosa Arena and shoot like Kiermaier and center field is, is unbelievable and, yep. and glass now, but like as, as soon as they get eliminated, people just like jump, jump up and down to like see you later nerds. Yeah. Like, so, so that's one aspect of it is I think there's a segment of folks who don't like them because of analytics or, Which is very, or what very odd considering every team's currently in the playoffs is it's heavily influenced by analytics and really the majority of teams in baseball at this point are. I really yeah, think the financial really more, component comes in. I, I don't know why they get the target on their back for being the analytics team when there are dozens of them. Um, but for some reason, you're right, they do. Maybe it's just because they have such a small payroll and are also still really good. So they're just kind of dubbed the analytics team, but it is it is odd. Yeah, it's like this. People have this idea of this analytics boogeyman that's out to ruin baseball in their minds. But but like you said, I mean the the teams they lost to, okay, they lost to the Red Sox, uh, a team that is very quantitatively oriented and and has been for a long time, maybe less so when. Uh, and the guy running their there. team came directly from Ray's ownership or Ray's right. General Manager. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So so yeah, Chaim Bloom obviously came over from the Rays. They're now playing the Astros, who are as quant heavy. And, and I would say just as non-traditional as anyone in the league. And oh, by the way, their, their GM is James Click, who came over from the Rays. <laughs> uh, Maybe this if, is really if, why, because all the, all the people running teams that are just, I guess, have a reputation for being analytics heavy, they're the people running the team just came from the Rays. I mean, the same is true for the Dodgers. But, but then I, that's what I don't, right. Like, yeah, the Dodgers, Friedman was there, former, you know, they beat the Giants like like Farhan is, you know, the former really old school team of the Giants. <laughs> yeah, like those are those are like two of the most quantish executives in the game or, you know, the Braves who who brought aboard a bunch of the Astros analytics folks. And I think Mike Fast, heavily, Alex um, Anthopoulos is, is pretty heavily into the analytics. I mean, it really feels like every team is at this point. There are only a couple you could point to and be like, oh, they really aren't with the game here. Yeah, yeah, they're very, I think, data-driven in their decision-making. So, so yeah, I mean, if, if you think the Rays losing to the Red Sox is some loss for analytics or quantitative analysis in baseball, I, I just don't think you have a very firm grasp on the reality of how these yeah, playoff if you, teams Yeah, if you're making any comments offices. about, like, analytics losing, yeah, you, I feel like you were clueless about the state of the game. Analytics won a long time ago, and that's why every team is being run by – I mean, by nerds. I say nerds. I, I don't say that pejoratively. I say it mostly jokingly. But yeah, if you're not running a team with a heavy analytics blend in your decision making, you're behind the curve. 
It's as simple as that. I mean, yeah. Moneyball came out in 2001 or it was about 2001 team, early 2000s. I feel like we've been having this conversation for multiple decades now. And I'm curious when it'll end, if, if it'll ever end. <laughs> I don't know if some of the players we talked about that on this podcast were even alive when that. No, <laughs> like one certainly of- not. A, everyone in the upcoming draft class is after that. So we've literally got a generation it's- under our belts since the analytics revolution has started. And we're still having these conversations. Yeah. I think a lot of people are just projecting whatever gripes they have with modern baseball onto either analytics as a buzzword or, or, or to the Rays as an organization, uh, because it's, it's just pretty detached from, from reality, but it's, it, it, but the other, like, like you said, I, I think the payroll aspect yeah. comes into it too. I th- I think there's a lot of, I think part of it is just as simple as when teams consistently win, a lot of people start to hate them. Um, Regardless of the team, I think this can happen with anyone, but I can see it especially being frustrating for teams or fans of teams in the American League East to spend a lot of money on their payroll. And then you get a team like the Rays who are near the bottom of the league in that department who have won arguably the best division in baseball the last two years came in second the year before that and have generally just been competitive um, while doing excellent moves in player acquisition and player development in the draft. Um, it's just easy to hate a team that does everything well and is successful regardless. But I do think, yeah, the financial component and just the, the negative connotation that analytics, like you said, as a buzzword still has in the game. Yeah, I, I think the rate like they're like an ink blot test for a lot of people to just project uh, whatever issues they have or are working through onto them. I, I, I think the payroll thing is, I, I think it's a labor issue for some people. They, they just don't like that the Rays don't spend money uh, or sure. don't spend much money on on players. Mm-hmm. But I mean, look like. I don't know, like they won a hundred games yeah. <laughs> in, in, in a division where three teams made the playoffs and the fourth, the the Blue Jays. I mean, I don't think if the Blue Jays got into the playoffs, I would not be surprised if they ended up winning the World Series, uh, if, if they'd been able to sneak into the playoffs at the yeah. end. Like that's that's a really good team. But I mean, the, the, the Rays have a, a strong farm system. They scout well. Uh, they sign good international players i think their pro scouting is is pretty great i don't think that's uh a controversial statement by any means like i think they've made some fantastic trades uh they made a lot of really smart baseball decisions and and they're fun to watch i mean you could say you know they haven't won a world series like all right like that's that's true but there are 10 teams in the playoffs and I mean, I mean, the Dodgers were the best team in baseball for like a decade and they didn't win a world series. So. Yeah. I I haven't done a study on this, but I'm pretty sure since they've gone to 10 teams, nine out of 10 teams every year, do not make, (laughs) do not win the world series. Like it's seems pretty remarkably consistent year to year. Like it's, it's a, it's a tournament. It doesn't decide who the best team in baseball is. It just, it declares the champion of the tournament and, and in a five game series, the, I mean, the best team in baseball can lose to the worst team. 
Absolutely. The, the Red Sox might end up going to the World Series. They might end up winning the World Series. And and they started the season getting swept by the freaking Orioles, man. Like, yeah. like things like that happened. It, it, being it's, being a hundred win team in the regular season is more impressive than than winning the World Series to me. I mean, it's it's more difficult to do. It speaks more to the quality of your team, the strength of your team. And obviously the World Series is the goal. That's what everyone's trying to to achieve. I'm not trying to knock that, but there's just a lot of randomness that's involved in the playoffs when you're dealing with the best teams in the league playing, like I said, five and seven game series, anyone can get hot at that point. So you got to get lucky I, as I well think, as being good in the playoffs. I mean, it, it it's a, a razor thin series and, and what a better series to, <laughs> I mean, if you can't see the example of that in that specific series between the Rays and the Red Sox, it could have easily swung the other way based on how a baseball ricochets off of an outfielder's leg. <laughs> I mean, like, that's it's just what, what better example to see like how, how things could just easily swing either way. Like, mm-hmm. I, I mean, again, like this is a team that won 90 games for four straight year. Well, not 2020, obviously that was a shortened season, but mm-hmm. they, they did go to the world series. They were on a 90 win. They were, they had, the best winning percentage I mean they've had since actually that was their best winning percentage of all time that year so it's not like they were bad just because they didn't get the win stuff on a shortened season yeah yeah I'd call it a good season so yeah look I mean <laughs> ultimately the like look the goal is is to win a ring but I, I think this is an extremely mm-hmm. successful franchise that's you know makes good decisions is fun to watch <laughs> I and, and and did so in, in a very challenging division this year. So I think a lot of things uh, on criticisms that they get are um, not not entirely uh, well founded. Yeah. Well, we are. Uh, I think we're solidly team nerd on this podcast for many different reasons. Um, but with that, we're going to go to a quick break. We'll be back to talk about some Arizona Fall League. Jupiter, uh, and a few other things before diving into a few questions. So thank you guys for sticking with us so far. We'll be right back. All right, we are back. Thank you guys for sticking with us. Uh, Ben, the fall league is underway. Josh Norris is obviously super amped about it. I think this is his Christmas every year. He loves the fall league so much. Um, For me, the fall league is never a a very high priority um, coverage area or event just because of I'm just focused on the draft. And when I'm done with draft stuff, I just pivot to prospect handbook. Um, But that's not to say it isn't a very important league or time of year. What is your experience with the Arizona fall league? What are your thoughts on it? And and what should we, why should we care? I guess if I need to even put that out there for our listener base, I'm sure they're all shaking their heads right now as I even pose a question to you. It's, it's fantastic. I mean, if you, if you're listening to this prospect or if you're listening to the podcast, I'm sure you love following prospects and there's no, there's no better time to see prospects as a fan than going to the Arizona fall league. If, if you just care about prospects from all clubs, like, you know, if you just, if you just care about one team, that's a little bit different, but it's just such a great atmosphere in Arizona. It's, you just roll up tickets are cheap there's not a ton of people in the stands you can pretty much sit wherever you want you can it's easy access to 
the players, like you could probably shout something to the player at third base. I'm sure he'll hear you. Like it's, it's just, and there's so much talent out there, especially position prospects arms, you know, a little bit more hit and miss, but I mean, shoot, man, like even the arms that are not that good, or I shouldn't say not that good, but like the guys who are not the top prospects who might be more relievers or organizational guys are still throwing like 95 these days. So, um, you know, there's, there's still some velocity that these guys are, are facing out there to get tested against. And you can see, you know, game in the afternoon game, game in the evening. Uh, it's, uh, it's good weather that time of year, usually in, in Arizona, it's, it's not like oppressively hot. So, um, it's just a great atmosphere to see him. And, uh, unfortunately you, you pretty much have to go there if you want to see these games because, MLB for for reasons I do not understand does not stream these games. It's it's really bizarre. If only they had a and, really um, good streaming service they could use that everyone had easy access to. They could put them on. That would be great. Yeah, that must be the roadblock. They should invent like <laughs> they should invent well, Mulb TV as you would probably <laughs> call it. Like that's that would be a good idea. No, the vowels don't work out. You know, the vowels don't work out. Can't do it. Oh, okay. Is that it? Yeah, so, that's it. but like, dude, just like set up. I don't understand. Like, I can watch. I can I can sit at my home, pull up my computer, and watch streams of multiple Chase Petty high school baseball starts from yes. a very uh, typical New Jersey high school baseball field. Because, you know, a couple guys like, you know, set up some cameras and stream it and produce a broadcast that is on par, if not better than many MILB TV streams. Yet, Major League Baseball can't figure out a way to to do that. Like, they, they can't and have like, with the playoffs or like, or college students or like something like what I don't, I don't understand like why are you not helping to market like yeah. you have like spencer torkelson and, and i have Marco no idea Luciano why but i wouldn't be surprised Beatty, at like, all if it was as simple as the playoffs are happening and mlb doesn't want to distract from the playoffs in any way but you're right 100 percent. there'll be a ton of people i actually this. think it's they just don't think about it like they just don't think about it and they just don't care like if it's not if it's not major league things below the major leagues they just don't really care much about and it's really I, they, they really never have i mean they've tried to make a bigger deal obviously of of the draft but they're just not like totally committed to that they don't view it through that lens and and some of the biggest and most marketable players are are young players like blaze jordan is more now he's not on the folly but like he's he he has more fans than than some of the players who are on the major league roster for the red sox i mean kids are are following these guys and not just kids like you know a lot of people are, are following you know both amateur and pro prospects extremely in depth right now um and I don't understand why MLB doesn't, you know, stream these games and then you, and then you can chop up all the streams and, and just get highlights all, 
offseason to pump out on social media or to use on MLB network or MLB.com or, or whatever you want to use it for it. It's, it's really, I, I hope it's something they can fix next year. So, so just so people have more access to be able to, to see these players and, and follow these games without having to buy a ticket to go to Phoenix. Yeah, absolutely. It, it sounds like uh, I've never been. Uh, it's one of the events that I would love to go to. It seems like all of the events that I would love to go to and haven't been to yet are, are the bougiest and most comfortable and fun um, environments for baseball. The Cape Cod League, I've never been to. The Arizona Fall League, I've never been to. Um, I just go to the ones where they play baseball all day in the Florida heat. Those are fun as well. Uh, I wanted to jump into a quick question from Steve Hardesty on Twitter, who brings up the Fall League and asks, who are some under-the-radar prospects who could climb onto the radar in the Arizona Fall League? Um, I think it's a good question. It obviously dovetails with our conversation here. Um, before we answer, I would point to a few stories that Josh wrote um, for the site a few weeks ago. One is 10 players who could regain or reinforce their stock in the AFL. This one might not directly answer your question, how you posed it, um, because most of the names here are fairly prominent. In fact, all of them are either first rounders or, or very high profile international players, I believe. Uh, a second piece maybe fits this more, five prospects who could pop in the Arizona Fall League. I won't give away all of those names. You should go read it if you want to check out the full piece, which is definitely worth it. Um, but I will just highlight Owen White uh, is on that list. He was, uh, I think the Fall League just released their Players of the Week, uh, their first installment of that. And Owen White was the Pitcher of the Week, I believe. And then Spencer Torkelson was their Hitter of the Week. I'm pulling that up just to confirm. Yeah, Owen White tossed five innings of shutout ball and allowed two hits um, to be named the Pitcher of the Week for the Arizona Fall League. And then Brett Beatty, not Spencer Torkelson, was the uh, Hitter of the Week. Although, given Spencer Torkelson's performance, he easily could have won that award as well. Um, so that's one name that Josh had. Ben, are there any players that come to mind for you that maybe address Steven's question here? I've got a couple that I'm excited about that, that maybe are or maybe aren't under the radar enough to qualify, but who do you have? Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. If you're in the AFL, you're, you've got to be on the radar, especially yeah. by our definition. But I, I like, I think Curtis Reed, uh, or excuse me, Curtis, Curtis uh, Mead with the, Rays came into the year who you know came into the year in a ball I believe it was his first full first year in a full season league it signed him out of Australia a few years back and really moved up quickly I don't think he's a a famous name yet but he got to the got to Durham got to triple a by the end of the year as a as a 20 year old so he's he's in the fall league. I think he's a guy who, if he, you know, continues to hit out there with everybody coming in and seeing him, uh, could could be a guy who who gets a little bit more, um, a little bit more attention. And then we we've talked about Joey Joey Weimer before, uh, Brewers outfielder with uh, uh, a lot of size and physicality and tools and and a lot of things going on in his swing coming into the year that he has has modified and those adjustments seem to really pay off for him especially toward the end of the season this year with the Brewers so seeing him if, he, if he's able to have a big fall you don't want to put too much perform or too much stock into 
the AFL doesn't, you know, override what you saw during the season, but for, you know, if he continues to do that against the quality of pitching, that's, that's above what he saw during the, the minor league season at, at the a ball level. Um, I think he's another guy who, who probably could get some more, more attention. Yeah, those are good ones. Uh, the guy that I'm looking at, I mean, he definitely not might not qualify as, as under the radar uh, for this question, but I think he's a guy who maybe people have forgotten a little bit about and has had a really good 2021 season overall. And that's Bryson Stott, who was a first round pick of the Phillies a few years ago, uh, is currently the number three prospect in that system. Um, after some of the arms they've taken, some of the prep arms they've taken subsequently in the first round. But he was really impressive this year, has improved his play discipline, has improved his power a little bit, hit 299, 390, 486 between, really he advanced two levels, started at high A, went to double A, then went to triple A. So a strong year for him and probably what you're looking for when you're, you're starting out as a 23-year-old in high A. I think that was encouraging. Um, so far in the fall league, he's off to a hot start. Uh, he's ninth in hitting at the moment. And if you just look at the players with more than 10 plate appearances, he's fifth after Spencer Torkelson, Brett Beatty, Elijah Dunham, and Austin Wells. Um, so he is a guy that I would point to as maybe a player who, who's kind of reclaiming some of the prospect stock that he had um, closer to his draft year. I've got a couple other middle infielders who are really interesting as well that are in the fall league and are off to pretty good starts as well. Ivan Johnson is one who maybe qualifies more as a bit of an under-the-radar name. He was a fourth-round pick by the Reds in 2019, and, and he was a guy who, when I initially saw him, I think I saw him at IMG Academy at an event that PBR ran um, that included some, some junior college teams playing against each other uh, for like an early-season tournament. I was really imp impressed with his just wrist strength and raw power that he showed as a switch hitter. I think he had a pretty solid season, 10 home runs, um, 19 doubles overall between a ball and high a ball. Um, he's off to a good start. I think he's got a chance to stick out a middle infield position and show some pop. And then the other guy, again, a first round pick. So probably not truly under the radar, but to your point, Ben, if you're in the Arizona fall league, I don't know if you really can be under the radar, depending on how closely you follow prospects, but Justin Foscu, at the time he was drafted, I think there was some thought that it was a bit of a reach with where the Rangers took him, but he was a very polished college hitter. Everything I've heard of him so far this year is that he's continued to hit very well, posted really loud exit velocities. Um, he's dealt with some injuries that had that really limited his time in 2021. He just had 62 games. Um, but we've also heard really good things about his defense as a second baseman. There were questions about you know, how much value was he going to add at the position? Um, people thought he would kind of have to play second or third, and he would just be at best a neutral defender and really have a bat-reliant profile. Um, but he hit well this year. I think he is another one who's also off to a pretty good start in the fall league. It's just three games for him so far, um, but he is four for 11. I think he's a guy who, who has a chance to hit for impact and also get on base at a decent clip. Um, it's a right, right profile. So maybe that puts a little bit more pressure on your bat, but the early returns of, of him offensively and defensively really this year have been impressive. So that's another guy that I think if he performs and has just a really loud fall league, I think he could get uh, maybe a little bit more recognition outside of the, either the Rangers circles or the, the really intense prospect hound circles 
Um, so a bunch of middle infielders from, from me. Yeah. I think those are uh, definitely guys who could, who could pop with some, with some big AFL numbers. There are a number of corner infielders that have been impressive. We already talked about um, Spencer Torkelson and Brett Beatty just having really strong starts to the league. They are really the two best hitters in the league so far. Uh, if you're just looking at the players who have a, a decent sample of games, it's still early. So I guess everyone has a super small sample. Uh, but one player I wanted to mention, Ben, is Tristan Casas. Um, and kind of as an entry point for our first sign one, trade one, cut one that we've done in a long time. Um, because recently we were talking about like really just how, at least for me, and I think this is true for most of the people at Baseball America as well, how, how difficult it is to separate and line up Boston's top three prospects. And I'm including Casas, their recent first round pick, Marcella Meyer, and then Nick York, who obviously was the, uh, the really polarizing pick they had in the 2020 draft, who has looked fantastic so far in his pro career. Uh, we're talking about kind of how to line those guys up and I'm curious where you stand and if you uh, if you have an order would you how would you sign one trade one cut one with Tristan Casas Marcelo Meyer and Nick York in Boston's organization very good three to have I think it's a good problem to have when when you're struggling to line these guys up because they're all really exciting offensive prospects who are going to play the infield in some some capacity Um, but do you have any strong order for these guys I think they're all, when we come out with our top 100, our new top 100 in January, even just starting conservatively, I think they're all top 50 prospects in baseball. I think they're probably all going to be in our top 40 also. And you could make a case that they all even belong in the top 30. Um, Tristan Casas is has done everything you could hope for uh, from from him, or or just about so far. Uh, the the bar obviously is very high for a first base prospect, but the reviews on him from scouts are are extremely encouraging. He he is a selective hitter. He, he has a good approach. He has a fairly short type or, or, or a fairly efficient swing for somebody as big as he is at six foot five. So a lot of swing and miss issues that, that you see with other hitters, his size typically are, are not there. He, he makes, he makes a lot of contact. And if you see either the exit velocities or the distance at which uh, he hits some of his home runs, uh, I don't think there's any question that, that he has big time power too. So he, he, he's somebody I, I think will hit in, in the middle of a lineup uh, and get on base at a high clip and hit for power and and play pretty good defense too potentially so um there's a lot to like with him and i I think just him having him having done it already at double a and being pretty much on the cusp of big league ready to me he is the best prospect in in the red sox system right now that said I, i wouldn't 
I, I think Marcelo Meyer, you can make the case has, has the most upside. Now he's the least has the least track record of anybody um, between him and Cassis and, and York, but you, you have a player who looks like he could stick at shortstop and has a, a beautiful swing seems to hit consistently in in games now saying that for a, a player who's only you know been at the high school level and, and the and the complex league level is, is different than you know say Cassis or or Nick York who's who's obviously dominated at, at the a ball level but he's he has you know more positional value certainly than than Cassis uh, he has more positional and, and more defensive value uh, he's, he's just a better defender, even at his position at shortstop than New York is at at second base. And and I think there's more power upside with with Marcelo Meyer than there is with Nick York, even if you have more confidence in York's pure hitting ability, just just based on, you know, scouting reports on on York and, and track record with York. So if if we're talking a year from now. Or, or maybe even less than a year from now, just based on what Meyer does, you know, in the first half of 2022, um, you know, I, I, I might take Flip Meyer ahead of him, but, but for now, um, I guess I would, I would sign Cassis. Uh, I would, I would trade Meyer, putting him at, at, at number two and, and, and cut York. But again, I, I think York is one of the best pure hitters in baseball and, and you can make a pretty compelling case that he's, you know, belongs in the top 30, 40 prospects in, in the, in the, in the minors. Yeah. No, I think you, you kind of broke down all these guys really well. I think my list will differ from you. Um, I feel fairly confident in Meyer. Number one, I do think all these, these players are, are very good in their own right, but I really love, just the the tier of player that that Meyer is and was in his draft class is another level from where Nick York and Tristan Costas were in their draft class. I think I like the track record of the top, um, the the best pure high school hitters in a draft class. The track record of that player specifically is really good, and also the track record of the top shortstops in any given or high school shortstops in any, any given draft class is really good. And Meyer pairs those two profiles together. He was number two on our board. You could easily make a case that he was the best uh, prospect in the 2021 draft class. We, we never really had strong conviction from the industry on a single player, um, but you could easily make the case that Meyer was the top player in the class. I mean, just looking at uh, JJ posted this in our Slack the other day, but just looking at the track record of the top high school players the high school shortstops and draft classes in 2020 you had cj abrams and bobby witt jr um witt was number two abrams was four on our draft board in 2018 we had royce lewis fifth on our draft board 2016 brendan rogers was number one on our board in 2013 carlos correa was six in 2012 we had francisco lindor and javi baez as seventh and 18th respectively and then in 2011 Manny Machado was third on our board. So just the, the track record of that profile in general, really of that list, Royce Lewis 
at this point is the only real question mark, I think. Um, and then Marcelo Meyer was obviously number two on our board with Jordan Lawler being the number one player this past year. I, I really love just the success of that type of player. And I, I think Meyer is a better pure hitter than a number of the other guys at the same time that I mentioned. Um, so I like that combination of, of safety profile and upside, like you mentioned, I think he's going to hit for a lot of power. I think he's going to hit at a high level. So I think I like him, him one, two and three, I really struggled with. I don't feel as confident in who I would, who I would trade and who I would cut here. And I think depending on the day, um, my answer would be different, but initially I had York two and Casas three. So I think I'm just going to stick with that now. And I think one, one of the biases that I certainly have and, and have been burned by in the past is just emphasizing profile a bit too much. I think you make a really good point about Casas's offensive upside, his on-base skills, his power. Um, I really have a lot of conviction in York's offensive ability as well. I was impressed with not only the, the pure hitting that he showed this year, but also the power that he showed. I mean, he hit 14 home runs and 20 doubles in low A and high A as a 19-year-old. That's pretty impressive to me. I think I think the way that the pick has panned out for Boston, despite it being controversial, also leads me to kind of buy into it a little bit more. I think there's definitely something the Red Sox saw with York as an amateur that, that maybe the rest of the industry didn't really get a chance to see, or maybe if the season had played out in 2020, we would think about him in a different light. Um, and again, it's just credit to Boston for, for getting on him and taking a, a risk at the time that's looked really good so far. Um, but the defensive position is really just going to be the tiebreaker for me here. And again, I think that is an, an area where in the past I've probably been burned by it at times, but I do think it's still important. So I'll go sign Marcelo Meyer, trade Nick York, and cut Tristan Casas. That'll be my order. Um, and it all is always fun when we have different orders for these, Ben. But curious what uh, you think, our. Uh... No, go ahead. I was going to say, do you think Myers in the the neighborhood of where like Bobby Witt Jr., your boy, mm -hmm. was when when he was in high school? Uh, they're very different mm -hmm. types of, of players. I would I would put him uh, a little bit lower than that. This question got brought up throughout the 2021 draft cycle just because the high school shortstop group as a whole was so impressive. Really, you, you can make an argument it's the best high school shortstop class we've ever had just in terms of number of first-rounders. Uh, number of high school shortstops in the top half of the first round. Um, it really did set a new bar for that position um, between Meyer and Lawler and Khalil Watson, Brady House, and others. I do think tools-wise and upside-wise, I think Bobby Witt Jr. was at another level. I mean, he's just more of an explosive player. He showed better raw power at the time, a much better runner, multiple grades better runner. Um, if not three grades better runner. Um, I know a lot of people really love Meyer defensively at shortstop. There are some guys who think he's going to be um, a really solid defensive shortstop. Some people think he's going to grow out of the position. And I guess that is a, uh, an opinion that is, has developed now with Bobby Wood Jr. There are some people who think maybe he'd fit better at third just because of his physicality. But I think even then at the time, he was a more explosive defender in addition to being a very instinctual defender that Meyer is. I think I like his arms. I, th I think just tools wise, Bobby Wood Jr. is at another level for me. Um, but again, the hit tool is the most important and you can make a case that 
Meyer had better pure bat to ball and better pure hitting ability than Bobby Wood Jr. did at the same time. Um, so if you wanted to make a case, I guess you could. It would be tough for me to buy it, though. I think I think Bobby Wood Jr. is another tier uh, for me personally. So far, so good, too, on those 2021 high school shorts. I know Jordan Lawler mm-hmm. got hurt, but House. Yeah, Watson, they all performed in small Meyer. samples. Yeah, Meyer hit 275, 377, 440, and I think it was like a 120 WRC plus for that league. Um, so even if those numbers don't like scream really impressive to you, it was a very solid debut. Um, so yeah, high school shortstops. Give me, give me all of the high school shortstops. That that's the profile that I just fall in love with, and I think most people do. Um, I'm curious to see how our listeners would line this up. Maybe we should do a poll on Twitter uh, to find out how how everyone else would line these three up because I think it's a great it's a great place to be in if you're Boston if you're struggling to find out how you would order your top three premium offensive prospects in baseball i mean who really cares if you're boston you've got all three so it doesn't matter yeah it's uh the track record of the top not that i think they'll all be in the top 25 but that they'll be close to it i mean mm-hmm. the track are the top 25 players in baseball certainly or players in our top 100 who are at least hitting prospects mm-hmm. is uh pretty good <laughs> no doubt Uh, And speaking of high school shortstops, there were a couple of high school shortstops that really stood out at Jupiter for me, wanted to pivot into that event and kind of talk about a few players who jumped out. I did write a piece, uh, a couple of pieces for Baseball America that really goes in depth to a lot of these players. There's 36 players in the 2022 class and then nine players um, from the 2023 or 2024 draft classes on the site right now that you can see if you have not read those yet. Uh, but two of the more impressive players were Mikey Romero, who is a shortstop out of Orange Lutheran High School, the powerhouse Southern California high school uh, that seemingly wins every national high school invitational it goes to. He was really impressive. And then a more under the radar player who is certainly not under the radar anymore, um, Nicholas Perez, a shortstop out of BU, BU Academy uh, out of Puerto Rico, um, was very impressive as well, both offensively they stood out. And I think there are some scouts in the industry now that see Perez as a top Puerto Rican prospect in the class, which is certainly not the case prior to Jupiter. Um, but those were the two that stood out to me. Mikey Romero's swing is, is becoming one of my favorites in the entire class. He's, he's not the biggest player. Um, he's, he's fairly lean, uh, lean and thin. It doesn't look like he's a guy that's going to have a ton of power now if you just look at his body but his hands are so twitchy his swing is fluid he gets on plane early he turns around velocity um with ease like he faced um he faced a pitcher throwing he touched 98 and turned around 95 like he'd just seen it every day of his life it was really impressive to me and i think he's a guy who is going to continue filling out and he has the sort of bat speed and and quality of contact that he's going to get some more power than maybe you would expect just looking at him physically He's listed at six foot, 175 pounds, um, but I love everything about his swing. And he was probably the most impressive pure hitter at the event for me. Um, so that's the guy I wanted to point out. The Nicholas Perez, another smaller guy, um, kind of an undersized six foot, 175 pound player. But it's interesting with him because a year ago, I had some scouts who were telling me they saw him and he was maybe 20, 15, 20 pounds lighter. So he was very small. 
short and thin at that point. He's added a lot of physicality, but even a year ago, he was, he was hitting for a surprising pop. There's something about the, the bat speed or the wrist strength or the quality of his contact where he can drive the ball more than you would expect. He was hitting cleanup for five-star national black, which made it to the final four of the event. Um, largely by his his efforts offensively. He went eight for 18 with a home run, three doubles, showed some pretty impressive plays defensively, moves moves around pretty well, solid glove work. Uh, the arm was a little bit inconsistent for me, but when he's set up um, and in line to the back, he shows off a solid average arm um, with good defensive actions overall. So those two guys really were impressive for me. I don't know if there are any, Ben, that you wanted to go into detail more with, um, but I figured we could talk about the Jupiter event as a whole, maybe dive into a few more players if you have the desire to. Yeah. How, uh, how was it overall? The, either the talent or, or mm-hmm. just the, the event this year? I think the, this year, the event was probably the most enjoyable Jupiter experience I've had. And, and maybe that's just because I missed it in 2020. It was actually in Fort Myers. I think we, they still called it Jupiter, even though it wasn't in Jupiter um but yeah not going to that event a year ago and just not going to as many events period a year ago made really everything i did this year more enjoyable uh we still had a few weather delays this year which is inevitable really when you're going to play baseball in florida at any point in the year it seems like um i think the talent we didn't have an explosive like wow appearance like what mason win had um two years ago I think that's probably going to be the kind of the high bar for a wow performance at Jupiter for me for a long time. It'll, it'll really be hard to to top that. I think it was solid overall. A lot of the top hitters were at the event. Tamar Johnson, number one player in the class was at the event. Drew Jones was there. Uh, Jason Jones, Mikey Romero, who now I think has a case as the top shortstop in the class at this point. And Cole Young, who would be the other guy that I point to for that title. He was there. A lot of the top hitters were just fine. Uh, Termar only played a couple games. He had a tweaked his either his hamstring or his leg and, and, and got pulled. So he only played three games and it was kind of just normal Termar. Um, didn't, didn't have anything crazy. wasn't bad. It wasn't great. Uh, but he, his track record of hitting has, has been so established for me that it's hard for him to really move too much. Um, Drew Jones is probably the the hitter, the most high profile hitter I was looking forward to just getting some more ABs from. He hit the ball hard. He hit a lot of balls in the ground and didn't have a great um, Jupiter just performance wise. Um, and I know there are going to be scouts who think he needs to make some swing changes moving forward, but um, he still continued to put the bat on the ball um, and hit the ball hard. I'm trying to think if there's any other players who are ranked highly that stood out. Uh, I mean, Cam Collier might now have a case as the best third baseman in the class. You've obviously been familiar with Cam as a a player who was originally in the 2023 class who reclassified. I think most people probably would have him as the top third baseman in the class now. I guess another player who was maybe not in this kind of tier of, of prospects is Max Martin. He was very impressive the first day offensively. He had three really hard hit balls um, in each of his first three plate appearances. Um, really twitchy actions in the box and defensively later uh, in Jupiter he made a number of plays as a shortstop that I was kind of wowed by so he's another guy who's moving up Um, and then the top pitcher for me was very clearly Levi Huseman who's a left-handed pitcher out of Hanover High School in Mechanicsville Virginia 
and he was a guy who, I mean, this class of left-handed pitchers is really strong on the high school class. I did not expect him to come out and have the performance that he did. I mean, he might've had the best individual performance. He threw, I think a complete game, seven innings shutout against a Dallas Tigers team that had Jason Jones struck Jason Jones out three times, uh, struck out 18 batters in total on 102 pitches and just the arm speed, the athleticism, his feel for strikes, 71% of his pitches were for strikes. He was 92, 93 of this fastball, uh, touched a five. And really what impressed me the most with him was his, his feel for a slider around 80 miles per hour, a little bit lower than that as the outing progressed. His feel to land that pitch in the zone for strikes, uh, to put it below the zone, to backdoor, um, right-handed hitters and, and as a chase pitch for lefties as well was really impressive um, and easily the most dominant pitching performance of the event. So I think he's a guy who, who solidly put himself on the map if he wasn't already. I know he had pitched at a few other um, pretty high profile events this summer but was never quite this good. So those are a few of the guys who really stood out to me. Yeah. I got to go to the uh, minority baseball prospects, all American games. What a loaded event that one was. Yeah, yeah, it was fun, man. They had uh, Tamar was there, Drew Jones was there, a um, whole bunch of guys in that 2022 class, um, who who will be high high picks, and then some newer newer guys who were, who were pretty intriguing. Uh, and then they had the underclass All America game with you know Antonio Anderson and Trey Phelps, Ariel Antigua, Jaron Purify, a bunch of guys who were on our uh, on our 2023 board already. So it was, uh, it was a good, it was a good couple days to, to see those guys. Where, where, where did you see when, when Drew was playing Drew Jones, he was playing the outfields. Yeah. He was playing center field there. Yeah. So, and, and cause, uh, and he's, cause Elijah is usually Elijah green is usually his teammate hmm. on that. Uh, yeah, he was on that Phillies roster, but was but... not at the event. Um, there were a number yeah. of players who, who were rostered and didn't show up. Sal Stewart was one. Gavin Turley, another guy I was looking forward to seeing, but was not there. So that's pretty common for Jupiter, I would say, for a number of the top players to either shut it down or, or decide they need to rest up. Um, yeah, on with your, so that's obviously a good outfield. And they had Max Clark, our number one for uh, 2023 this summer on that team. So mm-hmm. um, they, they, they won a few games, no surprise. But it was it was interesting seeing Drew Jones playing – like it, at least you know during the game there at, at the minority baseball prospects game he he was playing center field that's his usual position but it was interesting watching him you know before the game he, he took ground balls he took in and out mm-hmm. uh he, he threw from the outfield but he also came in and took ground balls in the infield yeah he did that at the and baseball I, I, factory game as well yeah yeah i was just I've, I've seen him do that before never seen him play shortstop in a game, but just the fact that he's doing it tells me he must, he must have some desire to play shortstop. But I also imagine that if you grow up, I mean, he's, he's six, three, he's a great athlete and he, he's great defensively in center field is he's, he's really good instincts, really good range out there. But when you grow up and your dad is, I mean, what, literally the, best defensive center fielder of all time maybe yep you can (laughs) easily make that case and i think i've stuck my neck out there and said that before so and and you have the same name 
as him. Like, mm-hmm. all right, like it, it makes sense. Somebody's going to put you out in center field, right? <laughs> but he he keeps taking ground balls at at shortstop, and I know some scouts are are pretty intrigued by the idea of somebody who, I mean, he he reads the ball really well off the bat in center field. So you hope that translates in, at shortstop too. Uh, he he has the arm. He he he's a great athlete to be able to handle the position in, in theory and 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 make adjustments. Now, when you watch him take ground balls at shortstop, he looks like somebody who's spent a lot of time or spent a lot more time in center field. He looks a lot more comfortable out there. I like you just see the way he turns double plays, but he he doesn't have a ton of experience or, or a ton of reps at shortstop. So I, I think some teams are intrigued by the idea of drafting him and saying, Hey, like, would you go out and play shortstop? I mean, we can, and once you're in pro ball, you have a lot of time <laughs> and, and a lot of coaches who can work with you, especially if you're a high draft pick or a high priority prospect, like he will be to, to really drill down with your infield coordinator, your other instructors to, to work at your defense at shortstop. I don't, do, do you see that as, as something that could happen with him or, or is it even worth trying? I, I'm inclined where I see him just being so good in, in center field. And I, I don't think, I think there's more value to being a shortstop than being a center fielder, but I don't think the gap between the two is as great as, as some clubs or some, you know, folks who work in, in scouting or for, or for front offices have between mm-hmm. the gap between center and, and shortstop. So I'm inclined to just say, I think he's a really good defender and center and let him go out and continue to be a really good defender out there. But I, I think I, I know some clubs are at least intrigued about what he would look like at shortstop. If you just put him there and, and put him into, you know, professional development system how he would how he would look come come a few years from now. Yeah, it's fascinating, and I think a, a lot of it just depends on what he would want to do. If he if that's something he's interested in doing, I'd be much more willing to put him there and try it. If it's something where he's just more lukewarm, okay, you know he has a chance to be an elite defensive center fielder, and like you said, that position is still very premium defensive position along the spectrum. I'm probably more towards the shortstop, the gap between shortstop and center field is still enough that it would be exciting to do. I mean, it's just harder to play the infield than the outfield. And especially when we're talking about shortstop, I mean, that's your most premium defensive position outside of catcher. So if there is at all any interest from Drew himself to do that, I don't see what it could hurt unless the unless the amount of detail in his training and his development was somehow getting in the way of maybe offensive improvement that he needed to take steps forward with. If, if he didn't show the ability to kind of handle both at the same time, because there, there are some players who it it doesn't seem like their defensive work takes away from or affects their offensive game in any way. That would probably be my biggest question is, is he on track offensively in his development through the minor leagues and is the short are the shortstop reps that he's getting taking away from that or no. And if it got to the point where I felt like his, his offensive development, um, how he's handling like approach as levels progress, if there are any mechanical tweaks he needs to make timing, 
that sort of stuff. If, if in any way the shortstop defense was limiting him offensively is when I'd start to get a little bit wary and would probably just say, okay, we know that you're an elite athlete. We know that you're a very instinctual center fielder and can make a tremendous difference for the team in terms of run saved at a premium position in the outfield. Then you probably just move him there and let him do what he does naturally in the outfield and just focus on hitting. Um, if he is the guy that, that can kind of handle both and, and whatever steps he would need to take defensively, because like you said, he, he would probably need some work there, just refining the details of that position and the, and the smaller things. I don't know why you wouldn't want to try it, but again, those are questions that you probably or not. Probably you definitely need to know the player at a more uh, intimate level to really answer effectively. Um, and I don't know that I'm in a position to do it, but it's very intriguing to me. And I do think just from the reps that I've seen of him in the infield, it was a lot better than I expected the very first time I saw him kind of head to the infield. So I think it's, it's certainly a player who could make it happen. Um, and I'm excited to see what ine inevitably will, will happen with him. But at the end of the day, I think it's probably most likely that he just becomes a, a pretty terrific defensive center fielder. Yeah. I, I think just the fact that like, I don't see other outfielders just coming in and taking ground balls <laughs> and uh, during in and out. So you really just don't. The fact it is that rare. He's, he's just, just the fact that he's doing it makes me think he must want, he probably, there, there's probably some desire to at least try it out. Right. Like it, it's an unusual conversion. You don't see guys typically going from the outfield to the infield, but I, I don't think we should necessarily limit a player to a position based on where his high school coach or his travel coach plays him. Uh, like that's, we, we, we shouldn't limit players in, in that capacity. Um, so, so the argument like, you know, the argument is all the things we, we talked about where that, that skill set could fit at, at short side with more development and then worst case scenario, it doesn't work out and yeah, you lost some time, but I mean, how, how much longer is it going to take for him to like get back up to speed in, in the outfield, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. I think, I think he'll look pretty comfortable pretty much as soon as you put him back in the outfield. If, if you do make that change and, and be a, you know, ha have a chance to be a plus defender and in, in center field. Yeah. Agreed. Um, well, with that, again, if you guys want to check out um, the full notebook of Jupiter, definitely head to the website. I think Ben's going to have some some notes up on some of the events he's seen this week as well. So depending on when you listen to the podcast, that will be on the website. Um, additionally, wanted to jump into a few listener questions here before we signed off for the day. Um, ben Finn on Instagram asked, who do you think is the best left-handed pitcher for the 2022 draft? Um, and this question is a very tough one because there are a number of candidates that I think make sense. Um, the college side has a lot of questions more because of a lack of innings and injuries. Um, that class obviously is still impacted by the COVID year uh, and scouts definitely have less feel for the college group as a whole than they would for a typical group. Um, but if health wasn't a factor, I think Alabama left-hander Connor Prelip would be the pretty easy answer here for, for just the class overall. I mean, his, his pure stuff from like a pitch data perspective is outstanding. He posted a 0.96 ERA 
over 28 career innings with Alabama. And, and that is the sticking point with him. He does not have too many innings. He had Tommy John surgery last year that kind of cut his season, season short, excuse me. Um, but he's got a mid nineties fastball and a mid eighties slider. That's been one of the most dominant pitches of this draft class is a pitch that generated whiffs more than 50% of the time, which is just insane. So I'm very curious to see how teams are going to stack him up next year because he, he was trending towards like number one player in the class if he was healthy. And, and if he didn't get hurt, it would be a very easy player to put at the number one spot. Whereas now we have kind of a cluster of bats that were difficult to kind of line up and, and see who's number one. So I think Connor Prelip, while he might not even pitch next year, is probably my favorite individual left-handed pitcher just because of the pitch quality. And then on the high school side, there's a cluster of four lefties that are inside our top 10 right now. And I've talked to a number of scouts throughout the summer and, and throughout the fall, just kind of seeing who they prefer of that group. And it's, it's one of those situations where depending on who you talk to, you get a vastly different order. I mean, Jackson Ferris, I feel like probably has the best combination of a deep arsenal strike throwing um, and projection with a six foot four, 190 pound frame. So he's kind of got a lot of the starter traits that I like. There have been some other pitchers that have showed more dominant stuff. Tristan Smith, when his breaking ball is on at PG national, it's one of the better curveballs that I've seen in the class. Um, he also gets in the mid nineties from the left side. Uh, but at the same time, Smith is a guy who's, whose track record of throwing strikes is a bit scarier. Uh, Brandon Barrera is a smaller guy. So maybe you have some questions about that, but he's got maybe some of the best arm speed in the class, been up to 96. That was a really good slider with tilt in the low eighties has shown some feel for mid eighties changeup as well. Again, he throws that pitch with really impressive arm speed that adds the deception. And then Noah Schultz is like the spin rate King. Everything he throws is high spin. Um, he's got that huge six foot nine, 220 pound frame, low slot, really tough AB against lefties and righties. Really great feel for this kind of slurvy mid seventies breaking ball. Um, but just the, the spin traits for him overall are impressive. I think he's a guy, again, who has shown um, uh, the questions for me would be like third pitch. Does he get to the changeup consistently? Uh, and you really don't see a ton of guys who are that tall that pan out very well. So I'd just have some questions in general about the size. But he is a guy who has great body control, seems to be a pretty good athlete, um, and is synced up pretty well consistently. So I know I'm just kind of listing our top guys here. I think at, at this point, I would say Connor Prelip or Jackson Ferris, but I think you could have a number of different answers to this question. Ben, do you have any guys who, who jump out maybe that I didn't mention that you like or, or a clear favorite of the group that I did mention? Well, well, what's interesting is, I mean, take uh, maybe set Schultz aside for, for a moment, but like well, at least with Ferris, Barrera, hmm. Tristan Smith, I mean, we, we just had the Royals take a left-handed pitcher in the top 10 picks of the draft and, and maybe he wouldn't have, you know, uh, certainly it was an underslot deal, but had they not taken him, he, he probably still would have gone somewhere in the first round. Um, yeah. Every, there were, ton, there was tons of buzz on Frankie Mazzucato, like leading up to draft day. And I was expecting him to go somewhere in the back of the first. Um, so I think you're right that he, he would have gone in the first regardless, but, but, but those guys and, and, and Mazzucato, Mazzucato is young for the class, but still, I mean, we're still, 
the draft is still what 10 months away or something like that. So we're earlier in the process than evaluating Mazzucato on where he was on draft day. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like, I mean, you could argue Mazzucato's curveball. Maybe it's certainly it would be superior to a lot of these guys breaking balls, but yeah, I think that'd be a pretty just, safe just, argument just, at this point. Yeah. But, but as, as far as fastball or just stuff overall, I mean, I, I think those guys are, are just as good of if probably not better, probably better than, than Mazzucato. Yeah. I think from, so, from so, just pure fastball. And then, I mean, Schultz probably throws around the same velocity, but when you factor in just like extension spin, the angle he gets on you, maybe you could say that his is better, but for sure. Yeah. So we're talking about three or four guys who could go three, just three or four high school left-handed pitchers who could go in the first round. And that's, bef- I mean, it, I think it just speaks to the quality of pitching in this year's draft. Cause we haven't obviously even got in like the right-handed pitcher with Lesko and Porter and then so many other guys on, on that side. But I, I think Schultz is, I'm not saying he's the best of this group, but he's, he's the most fascinating to me. Cause like you said, he's about six foot, what, six foot nine. Yep. Uh, it's just like Randy Johnson, Andrew Miller looking dude coming at you from <laughs> a low slot, like, like Josh Hader hair, like same kind of arm <laughs> angle and, and spin properties. And he doesn't throw as hard right now but you can see strength projection in there for him to, I mean, he's getting into the low nineties now. I think he does. He does. I mean, a lot of Mazzucato's fastball still start with an eight. Um, I, Tom, you know, scrape maybe a 93. Um, but, but I, I think Schultz has the, and I think Mazzucato will throw harder still. There's, there's good projection with him uh, and a very easy delivery. And, and I like him a lot, but I think Schultz could throw a lot harder a really tough slider to hit everything he throws is extremely high spin stuff i think there's a lot of good projection indicators with him where i'm i'm really really intrigued and fascinated to see just what he turns into and and how much of that projection too comes on by draft day because if he's you know to come next and they haven't announced the draft date yet, have they? But come next. No, we don't have it yet. July. But uh, I'm assuming. I mean, I, based on everything I've heard, I'm assuming it'll still be tied to the All Star break. So that should give you some idea of when it's going to be. Right. So, so if you know, if by June and and July he's getting his fastball up to 96, 97, and he has a really good slider, and he's coming at you from that really difficult angle, especially for left-handed hitters. I, I could see him climbing to, to the top of that list. Yeah. And what's interesting too, is, is like you said, this it seems like at this point, this year's class is much stronger on the left-handed pitchers in general. Last year, our top ranked lefty was Jordan Wicks. He was number 13 overall on the board. Um, and beyond him, you had to get to 28 to get to Anthony Salamito. Then Matt Mikulski at 39 and 42 was Frankie Mazzucato on our board uh, kind of at the end of the process. Obviously, there's a chance there's another player that pops up like Mazzucato did, who just kind of off the radar for us now, who could wind up being the top lefty in the class. That's that's always a possibility, especially for pitching. Guys can really just come out of nowhere. Um, but we do have four, like you mentioned, four high school left-handers in our top 10 on our left-hander list. And then on the college side, we've got Hunter Barco at seven, who we haven't talked about too much, but is a very strong uh, pitcher in his own right, who... 
uh, in terms of innings um, and just quality of stuff, maybe is the, the left-hander you feel the most confident in on the college side. Prelip at number nine on our college list. And then Reggie Crawford, who I wanted to mention because he's a guy who's thrown just seven innings for Connecticut in his college season, but was also the most impressive college pitcher for the collegiate national team this summer. So that's another guy that you just don't feel very confident in the history that he has. He's a two-way player who's been a pretty good hitter as well, but scouts are really just intrigued with the stuff, the body from the left side that he showed just in flashes this summer. Um, but you really have no strong feel for what he's going to do next spring. I mean, I think of not to the same extent because Jaden Hill had track record as a prep pitcher um, and performed in a reliever role with LSU, but kind of in that same capacity, it's a guy with really impressive body, really impressive pure stuff, but you really just need to see him take the ball and start every week in college to feel confident that he's going to be a top of the first round pick. Um, so there's still a lot of questions in this demographic, but I think we can feel pretty good about the just overall strength of the left-handed pitching in the class at this point um, and how these guys perform over the next, what, eight months will really just depend um, and, and will be telling for us. Hopefully there's more clarity. That's always nice when we do get some clarity here, but there are plenty of options if you like left-handed pitching, which the industry very much does. Hopefully we didn't give Josh a heart attack from all these comps we just dropped. <laughs> um, I guess the last question we'll jump into today, because we have been going for a while here, is Jack Breen on Twitter asked, uh, for the next podcast, is it harder to scout a high school player in a region like the Northeast than a player from Florida since they are not playing against better competition? Or is it easier since they should stand out and you'll have a better chance of seeing all of his tools in game? Uh, I think this is a good one, Ben. And since you're in the Northeast, um, I feel like we can just throw it to you because you spent really the entirety of last spring going around to high school games and scouting players up. Uh, I have a pretty clear cut answer for this that I feel like makes this question easy for me, but I'm curious to see where, where you're coming at it from. I think it's always better to see players go up against good competition. Um, yep. We're in agreement it's, here. It's tricky. It's tricky to get a read on a hitter when he's facing a pitcher who's throwing 71 miles an hour and who has is not even going to like play college baseball or anything like that. So, um, and, and it's true too for international players too. I mean, like you, you see kids from the Bahamas and talk to scouts about, you know, hitters there and it, it's it's sort of changed and evolved more over the years now. Some of those players will go to the Dominican Republic or, or they'll come over to the States and, and tournaments for Florida and you'll see them against better pitching. But just the the pitching that you see a kid from the Bahamas facing is not gonna be you're just they're not gonna see you're not gonna see him facing as much velocity if you're scouting them in the Bahamas compared to a player who's the same age you're scouting in the Dominican Republic where you're gonna see him you know, you can have him face a guy throwing 85 plus or 90 plus any, any, any time you want pretty much. So um, it's, it's the same thing in high school hitters. It, you get a better gauge on them when they're, when they're seeing better competition. If, if you do see a hitter struggling against uh, bad competition, then I guess that's, that's even more 
of a of a red flag, but it's it's hard to get too juiced up over you know seeing a guy crush a seventy three mile an hour fastball with a, a metal bat in his hands. Yeah, absolutely. I don't I don't have a ton more to add. I think you kind of summed up exactly how I feel about it as well. Um, if you could pick, I think it's always better to just uh, have players facing the best competition they can. I mean, the players who are jumping out of that environment, you can feel a little bit better about their underlying ability than, like you said, players who are facing competition that um, really taps out at high school. So uh, thank you guys for those questions. Um, that's all for today. Um, so we'll get out of here. Thank you guys for listening again. Um, we really appreciate it continues to be fun to do this podcast with you, Ben, but I guess before we leave, uh, do you have anything you want to plug for the listeners, anything you're working on, anything you want to draw their attention to before we get out of here? Yeah. Like you said, we got some more, uh, like we were talking about earlier, I guess in the podcast, when we're, when we're on the road so much, it's like, all right, now I have to come home and actually write <laughs> up and go over all these guys, especially at those big WWBA tournaments that we were at in Florida. So I was at a couple of them. So we'll have some stuff on the top 2024 and 2023 guys uh, in particular who, who jumped out at a couple of those tournaments in Fort Myers. And, and we have the prospect handbook too uh, available now for uh, pre-orders. Who's, did you see who's on the cover of that Carlos? A pretty good player there. Pretty good player. Minor league player of the year, Bobby Wood Jr. on the cover. If you guys want to, uh, it's not too late to jump on the bandwagon. He is not a major league player yet. So I'll still accept uh, any newcomers who, for whatever reason, were not on board. You guys can get on board if, uh, by pre-ordering our prospect handbook. Yeah. If you're not on board at this point, I don't, I don't, I don't know what you're, you're doing. You don't listen like, to this podcast. This is your first is. time listening to the podcast. You're not on board yet. But yes, we have that available for pre-order top top 40 prospects really in in each organization we go we go 30 deep online we go 40 deep in the handbook with some some bonus supports and a lot more information mm -hmm. in there so we're in the process of putting that together so um appreciate all you guys who order that every year from us so we uh we love love putting it together so we're we're excited to have that uh, mm -hmm. available now at uh baseballamerica.com by the way is also the People, you can order it from Amazon too. I think it's a little cheaper on Amazon, but you'll probably also get it later if you order through Amazon. If you order it through us, you'll you'll probably get it faster mm -hmm. that way. So, uh, and, That's and it's better for works. us too. I think it's so like we, a couple of weeks at the bare minimum that you get it earlier if you order from us, right? I, uh, yeah, I forget the exact amount of time, but typically, yeah, if you if you get yeah, it either from way, us, every year it seems like faster, so. for sure, and it helps us more, so we we appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in addition to that, um, we have Arizona Fall League coverage that's kind of ongoing from Josh and Kyle and the, the rest of the prospects crew. Um, I'm sure JJ is just uh, shaking with anticipation because the Rule 5 draft is approaching. So be on the lookout for coverage from that event. Um, although I guess it's still a decent bit away. I guess when you work with JJ, uh, you realize it's coming sooner than most people. Um, still some more draft stuff that's going to come out before the end of the year. And like Ben said, I'm just plugging away at prospect handbook assignments at this point. So yeah, that's kind of what we have going on here again. Thank you guys for listening to the podcast. If you have not rated and reviewed, um, it is still very helpful for us to do so. You can do that on iTunes. Um, you can listen, subscribe to the podcast on any uh, podcast listener that you prefer. 
Um, and with that, uh, for Ben, I'm Carlos. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.